Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. When we were kids, everyone said, don't get in the car with strangers. And now we use an app to just do exactly that thing. And I think there's just this inherent want for people to be heard. So social media is just this platform where people can really specifically say who they are, what they stand for, and define who they are as a person outwardly, accurate or not. And there's just this base level ego need I think people have to engage in that. And it's such an impulse that they don't stop to think about the fact that they are a product to the platform. Well, they did it again. Facebook, you wily rascal. I wish I knew how to quit you. Stay with us. Full Disclosure is sponsored by Elwood Thompson's, a small, independent, local, organic market located in RVA's Carytown, but really so much more than that. I practice what I preach because I am there daily for breakfast, enjoying the Blanchard's coffees, that vegan biscuit at the breakfast bar. My gosh, it's so good. The salad bar, Indian Wednesdays, the Beat Cafe. I love it. I've even um, taken a shining to the peanut butter machine. It's exquisite. Visit Elwood's at the top of Carytown at Elwood and Thompson Streets, hence the name, and Thompsons.com. Joining me in studio, a pair of ad industry gurus. Uh, Susan Winograd, Digital Marketing Ninja, Account Group Director at AimClear. Her CPM is $18, preferably in Bitcoin. How are you? Great. How are you? And returning to the show, Neil Patel, burned out former ad exec. He's worked under Interrepublic, Omnicom, previously at Disney. Sir, how are you? I'm good. We're never burned out. We just never give up. Um, never surrender. Maybe I should have used that instead of Rockwell at the top. <laughs> but I don't think that Facebook is surrendering in this case. It seems that company, that that indispensable company that's created a parallel internet that everyone wants to use, you're ineluctably drawn to it, but you also hate it. Um, you know, Right now, with all of this news coming out on the latest scandal of getting an opposition firm to go after Facebook's opponents, um, I'm reading a headline from The Verge, Facebook's latest scandal has Washington's full attention. A bipartisan group of senators is sounding the alarm over Facebook's questionable use of an opposition research firm. Uh, There was a New York Times columnist I read today that said that college friends are reaching out and asking again, like in the Cambridge Analytica scandal, should I unplug Facebook? What is your read, Susan? So I think part of the issue is that there isn't anything to take its place. So people would like to unplug, but then where do they hang out with each other? Where do they upload their photos? Where do they talk about their new memories that they're creating every day? So there's, I think there's a, a backfill challenge of what Facebook provides and no one else is able to do it as well as they do. Um, tied to that, from an advertising standpoint, there's no other platform that offers what they do. So there's kind of this symbiotic relationship between the users and the advertisers using this platform that they really don't want to like as much as they do. I completely agree. I think it's it's it, they're really like a lot of these modern platforms. They're a privately funded public utility. You can't imagine doing without them any more than you can imagine doing without electricity or garbage pickup or whatever. It's a, an integral part of life. It's just a private company who's doing it. And um, it comes with, uh, comes with its uh, pluses and minuses. You know, you see the for time immemorial, people have invaded against the cable company, the, the you know the the dumb tubes, the pipes. I mean, if you want to call it Cable Town, Comcast, Charter, Store Cable back in the day, senators would invade against cable rates going up, you know, at three times the rate of inflation and everything. And at the end of the day, like Neil said, they are utilities. You have to deal totally. with them. But I do wonder. Facebook did emerge out of this ooze, out of nowhere. I think circa two thousand and five, people really started talking about it, and then. Something really jumped around 2009, 2010, where all the attention was taken away from MySpace and Facebook sucked the air out of the room. It wasn't about Yahoo anymore. It became this kind of duopoly of advertising, digital advertising, Google and Facebook. Facebook also bought Instagram. Uh, Google has YouTube. They have taken all of the rents away from the traditional advertising verticals. Um, my question to you, Susan, is why hasn't somebody created a friendlier version of Facebook? I mean, after all, Google, when it IPO'd in 2004, it, it did have in its charter, do no evil. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it stands to reason that you could build sufficient network effects if you came out with a parallel version of Facebook that didn't have to pry into all of your avenues. You could. I think there's two challenges with it. The first is that Facebook is a very developer-driven product. Uh, It's very well done in that manner. So recreating that is difficult. The other issue you really have is just the user base 
piece of it. It's become such a habit. So like Neil pointed out, it's become a utility, but it's not the same thing as leaving like a Comcast to go to Verizon Fios. Yeah, there is no other Verizon Fios Correct. you can go to. Exactly. That's so the actual issue. You, you'd have to change user behaviors. And when you look at how often people access Facebook per day, how much time they spend on it, it's a really tall order to try and get them to replace that with something else that's unknown. I mean, well, not I mean, for lack of trying. I mean, Google did try. <laughs> Several times. Yeah, and they've not had luck. And what was to me... Uh, both uh, interesting and somewhat comical is when the Cambridge Analytica thing happened. A number of my relatives and friends called me and said, oh, my God, I have to get off Facebook. What about, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to just move to Instagram or WhatsApp. <laughs> and they were surprised to learn when I informed them, actually, Facebook owns that. Facebook is not just the big blue app. It's they effectively own that, you know, pretty much that entire mode of communication. Mm -hmm. uh, LinkedIn and others are coming along and everybody's sort of get, trying to get a piece of the pie. And I don't think Google will ever stop because they have both the money and the desire to do that. But mm -hmm. boy, man, they're hard to beat for how do you get two billion people to switch on to another platform? Yeah. And that two billion people includes your grandma. You yeah. know, that it's very, you know, my mother uh, is not necessarily going to switch to Instagram. Right. Yeah. And they, I mean, you're forgetting also one of their highest growth channels right now is their messenger. So they've also got the messenger game locked up from people that they don't use, you know, AOL's instant messenger went away and that's what everyone uses now. The Most people have stopped texting and they just use Facebook messenger. So they've got their fingers in a lot of different pies that diversifies them somewhat, but they are still very reliant on that main platform. And it's extensive. I mean, okay, messenger is what it is, but in other parts of the world, WhatsApp is so critical mm -hmm. to all kinds of transaction and communication. Um, you, people can't imagine not uh, not using it. I have Indian relatives who are like, why aren't you on WhatsApp? Why aren't you using WhatsApp more often? What's wrong with you? Uh, it's, it's just, again, it's part of their portfolio products. Let me take some numbers back, though. This has not been a banner year for Facebook Correct. financially. No. Nope. Having said that, I mean, look, this is a $400 billion valued company. It is one of the one of the top values of all media players in the country. If you look at the likes of the ones that it displaced, um, let's take Comcast, like, let's take Time Warner, which is now part of AT&T, Viacom, which is almost an also ran. And in Europe, where they've taken significant scrutiny and significant regulatory pushback, we saw in 2018, they said daily and monthly active users in Europe fell from 282 million and 377 million in the first quarter to 279 million and 376 million in Q2. This is a company overall that is dealing with stagnation and um, might be on the margin if you look at the coverage of this latest scandal to be out there looking for uh, new ways to squeeze more out of its user base. They've been trying to do that. They've been trying to get into the longer form content game because one of the things that they became known for, especially on the advertising side, was video. Uh, it's very they very engaging ad units. They have a lot of options for running video. It tended to perform very well. So they've been trying to take some of the YouTube market share by having longer form content. They launched Facebook Watch. It has not done at all what I believe they were hoping it would do. So they are struggling to find ways to get people to stay because most of the thing that brought them there in the first place was the news feed. And they've launched other things to try and create other hooks, and they just don't have that main appeal. So they are seeing people go to Instagram, which is where they're putting a lot of their firepower, a lot of the advertising tools that they're starting to roll out. There's a lot of betas testing going on around uh, analytics and other types of things like that they're going to offer on Instagram that don't exist yet publicly. So they are starting to kind of move their chips to that side, but they're still trying to figure out how to stop the bleeding on the, the main platform side. Count me skeptical, but I go on Instagram. I mean, I use it on occasion. I've actually decided um, this year to take Facebook and Twitter off my phone, just to take that distraction off the table, leave it as kind of appointment stuff for my laptop only when I have to, so it doesn't guide my life. I noticed that the direct messages, that the queries were taking over my life, and then people getting into the uh, Facebook Messenger messages, and then WhatsApp, and then your text messages, and your email, and it just becomes overwhelming. But I do notice in the time that I spend on Instagram, which is looked at as such a masterstroke acquisition by Facebook, that the ads don't apply to me at all. I mean, it looks scrumptious, uh, you know, a Santa Clarita taqueria. 
I'm out here in Virginia. It's curious. Sometimes it gets my attention. Is there some sort of algorithm running that that says that I am, you know, I, I, I'm out there posting all sorts of stuff about Persian restaurants in D.C. and random restaurants in Richmond, Virginia. It doesn't seem targeted to me at all. A lot of that is the advertiser. Uh, whoever is running it probably doesn't know what they're doing all that well um, because the ads for Instagram run through the Facebook platform. So if you run anything on Instagram, you essentially have the same targeting options that you would on Facebook. That's usually what drives it. It could either be poor targeting. It could be the person running it doesn't understand how to set the geography correctly. Things like that can drive it um, without knowing exactly how they have it set up. It's hard to say what's wrong with it, but usually that's an advertiser problem. If you start seeing that stuff in your feed organically, that's more of you know a native algorithm problem as opposed to an ad one. But all this additional commercialization with uh, Instagram, like what's the connection between that and uh, Kevin Systrom, the founder, leaving. Is it? Is there any insight there? I mean, well, he couldn't have, say he, WhatsApp as well. He, he WhatsApp, I mean, he those have, founders got a big cash payout and then they left. They didn't believe in what Facebook wants to do with WhatsApp and maybe embed some messaging and, you know, get into that zone. It used to be pure. It well, used to be clean. And you'd the, pay $99, you know, 99 cents and get a... I think it's the pressure for commercialization. I think all of these founders came in, they were acquired at very handsome multiples, and now... The as the company's main sort of uh, platform uh, as growth is flattened, there's pressure to commercialize other aspects of it, and I can see where there'd be a lot of conflict with former founders uh, who maybe wanted to do more with the platform than what's here, and it may not always that more may not always mean more commercialization. I'm going to give you the idea here on the the problems, the blessings, and the curse of the huge network effects. I mean, Facebook being so ubiquitous. I'm quoting The Verge here. Governments continue to ask Facebook to take down more and more information. Facebook is reporting levels of bullying and harassment and child exploitation for the first time, and the company deleted 1.5 billion fake accounts in the second half of 2018. Just the second half. Just the second half. To say nothing of all the stuff that happened with the 2016 election and the various people who came in and we've, you know, the, the verb that I hate from 2018 the most is weaponized. Weaponized data. You know, these, these shady Russian firms or the Israeli third parties that came in and used it against people. And yet the flip side of that, Susan, is everybody willfully surrenders this information. What is it about that force field that I want to tell you that I love the band? Yes. And that I love RC Cola and that I love this. And, uh... I might have plantar fasciitis. Do you want to sell me a sneaker or something like that? I mean, if I had to take you back to the past and you were a Circuit City executive and in your past lives as marketing thing, could you have imagined any sort of, you know, 2001, a space odyssey scenario where we just all willfully volunteer this kind of information? No, but I think it also goes to this joke I saw recently that when we were kids, everyone said, don't get in the car with strangers. And now we use an app to just do exactly that thing. Um, and I think there's just this inherent want for people to be heard. So social media is just this platform where people can really specifically say who they are, what they stand for, and define who they are as a person outwardly, accurate or not. And there's just this base level ego need I think people have to engage in that. And it's such an impulse that they don't stop to think about the fact that they are a product to the to the platform. And I've heard something, the metaphor that most resounded with me and haunted me was this um, – Ivy drip of approval, the likes, the shares, drip, 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 having to go back to it. I mean, you've read Scott Galloway, the marketing executive, talk about that. I believe, um, you know, a, a Wall Street Journal columnist wrote about it. I mean, these are— It's dopamine, isn't it? What it it's, it's, a, it's a chemical that basically gets you these little drips of approval as you go along. Uh, it's a marvelous business model because in the end, and this is, I think, one of the great ironies— of these platforms in the modern age is uh, I'm willfully giving away my content, including my kids' pictures, uh, for global distribution. And the result is the world's largest and uh, most powerful content company in the world does not make content. It makes very little content. And when it does try to make its own content, it doesn't really work all that well or has not yet worked very well. And when it's tried to work with publishers, it's also sort of... Uh, not been as smooth. I mean, it's still working at it. It has to work at it. But it's, uh, you know, it's our content that's getting monetized and we're willfully doing it. And this is another WTF stat about fake news. I mean, fake news has been thrown around so much by this White House, but you can see where fake news turns lethal and deadly. It's happened in India. It's happened uh, with various blood libels. The BBC has an investigation into Facebook's role in Nigeria. Or Myanmar. 
where the police tell the outlet that false information and incendiary images on Facebook contributed to more than a dozen recent killings in Plateau State, which has recently seen a spike in ethnic violence. Um, here's a police officer being quoted. The truth didn't matter. The images landed in the Facebook feeds of young Barrow men in the city of Jos, hours to the north of the rural district where the massacre happened. That is beyond Twilight Zone Black Mirror. I mean, this is the point that the, the, the full democratization of the printing press, anybody could post anything on. Zuckerberg, in his response to this scandal, said we are employing more people, more artificial intelligence to kind of weed out fake news. But look, you, you created this. It is a parallel Internet, and it is vexingly difficult to police and monitor. And I can tell you from the ad perspective, this is something we run into a lot. So we could tell before you could pretty much get anything pushed live and it might get disapproved after the fact. We are having so many instances now where you will put an image with an ad and it will flag it and say this is political in nature and there's nothing political about the image whatsoever. So it has this AI that's looking for that stuff to try and catch it. But it winds up creating so much more work because then we have to appeal it and we're like, this I'm this is a pair of shoes. This has nothing to do with <laughs> case in case case in point, my nonpartisan ace the midterms event was flagged several times. It was the hardest thing for me to post yeah. that and get it through. Um these things are gumming up the works. It used to be so easy, Neil. I mean, you talk about the the UX aspect of this. I just remember the tipping point for me, circa 07 or 08, when everybody shifted away from MySpace and Every other, you know, incipient platform, I think Friendster was a 2003 vintage, was that it was so easy to upload. There weren't limits on the, you know, if you wanted to do a one gig video, uh, there weren't, they didn't throttle you. You'd realize that all of this stuff in the cloud was a commodity. It would be AWS hosted and you could put your entire life up on that. It was the ease of use that drove it. It was the ease of use and also the fact that it was no longer limited to just college students and the people from the dorm that actually, you know, blew up and made it what it is. But the challenge is, is, is this, it's still a content platform, whether it's their content or someone else's. And like any other product or company, it has collateral damage effects, right? Like, so if we think about Exxon, you know, we know what happens when a super tanker in Alaska runs aground. Everybody can see and feel what happens when all the oil leaks out and so forth and so on. And Exxon has all these contingency plans for when those sorts of things happen. Um, I think what you found here is a company, uh, and really all of us who think, you know, back going all the way back to Epcot and before, uh, you know, technology was always sort of seen as this utopian sense of like, you know, always going to be good, always going to be better for most cases. And I think we, and I would argue a lot of people in Facebook and Silicon Valley always had that mindset. Um, but here it is, we have collateral effects, uh, you know, which causes riots which causes uh, potentially elections to get hijacked and a lot of bad things to happen. And a company that wants to, that positions and sees itself as a platform is caught flat-footed dealing with the content issues. Now they're throwing engineers at it. They're throwing uh, moderators at it. Uh, but clearly from your experience, Robin, and yours as well, Susan, on the ad side, uh, they don't yet have a solution. And their reactions in terms of managing this has been uh, you know, uh, flat-footed thus far from what we can see in the press. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Neil Patel, burned out former ad exec. Uh, he was previously at Disney. He's now reinvented as a media guru and a digital marketing uh, ninja alongside Susan Winograd, who's account group director at AIM Clear. I would like to ask you, Susan, about stepping away from this brink. So the company has finally had to pay for this in market cap loss a handful of times, even around the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Uh, and everything else that happened, and for example, the Nigeria and India scandals. Mark Zuckerberg has been brought before the Hill. He's not the most charismatic person in the world. In fact, the whole area is, is rife with memes, kind of turning him into a lizard, like, uh, you know, sharing is caring, Earthlings. Share your timelines <laughs> with me. I am reminded of Bill Gates at the turn of the century. It's very hard for people to remember this now, but Microsoft was omnipotent and it was a villain and it was going to get broken up over what Internet Explorer did to Netscape and the like and that kind of anti-competitive foot in the door. Bill Gates definitely stepped away from that and he is now 
kind of 20 years later, a hero. He turned to charity and everything. Why is Mark Zuckerberg still running this company? Honestly, I think it's ego. Um, It takes a certain amount of maturity at some point to realize the pieces that you are and are not good at. And having someone that is a different public face that can relate to people better and be able to explain what's happening, communicate more clearly, would not be a bad thing for him. I think there's still that perception that, you know, Facebook is his baby and it's the perception internally and it's definitely the perception that it's a developer centric culture. So I think there is also in their DNA, it is not woven in that marketing or the appearance of things is particularly important. They are very user experience code driven. So it's a different outlook and it's very factually based, which isn't a bad thing, but it can be factual to a direct nature that doesn't connect with people, which I think is different than having someone that is a marketer that understands how to package up messaging. He has not handed that off to anybody. I think people were hoping that maybe Sandberg would be that person, but that does not appear to be the case. He, to my mind, is a metaphor for kind of overindulgence in STEM education. This is a guy who could have benefited (laughs) from humanities, studying nationalism, studying yellow journalism, the press, propaganda, and the like, and he seems maladroit to it. I'm quoting the Wall Street Journal and Barron's here in questioning uh, some on Wall Street after this scandal are wondering, you know, they asked her in a conference call whether he might step down just as chairman. Zuck said that it just wasn't the, quote, the right way to go. Uh, but inside the company, the Wall Street Journal found out that Facebook's own measure of worker sentiment are downbeat. Just over half of employees now said they're optimistic about Facebook's future. That's down 32 percentage points from the year earlier. You know, Neil, that it is a cutthroat place. It pays top dollar to poach from all manner of areas and keep people there in this sprawling empire, $400 billion of market cap. It's an international company. WhatsApp is managed independently. Instagram is managed independently. Uh, they have uh, a, a thriving kind of biz dev arm. They bought Oculus Rift. I mean, what is it? Oculus that I – you don't even hear about that thing. It was, it was kind of bought and – you know, it's put on the shelf for something that may or may not happen in the year twenty twenty two. They're not unlike Google or any of these uh, any of those tech companies. They have very deep pockets. They're what they are, uh, like a lot of those tech companies with deep pockets, paranoid. So anything, be it Oculus or anything else, uh, that may appear to have either promise or be a threat, they're going to jump on and acquire because they can. Um, in terms of Zuckerberg, I think well, you know, we can fault him for a lot if we choose to, but. This is the guy who bought Instagram at a time and at a multiple that most people thought was crazy. Uh, same with uh, WhatsApp. And they've turned them into pretty significant businesses and more importantly, kept them from becoming a flanking threat to their business. And he had both the vision, the gravitas uh, and the pull with the board, particularly with his vote amounting to so much of uh, the count, to be able to pull that off. Uh, I don't necessarily think that would happen and any other way. I think the the other issue here is uh, Sheryl Sandberg. She really can talk to people. She's a, a star from the Clinton uh, era uh, and uh, a, a, you know, a protege of Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. We have to look at these operational issues and say, where is Sheryl in this? Uh, by all accounts, she's a very competent person and uh, – uh, can attract any and all kinds of talent to the company, not just with the stock, but what they've been able to do. What happens to her? What's her role? What's uh, wh- you know? What happens to her going forward? I don't see people making a change with Zuck, no matter how much Wall Street might want that to happen, or uh, how you know maybe less than you know, great you know, he might the, be in a, in a in Neil, testimony. They could, they could let's 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 channel Machiavelli for a minute. Uh, they could call it a day and sell to Mohammed bin Salman and the Saudis now. Okay, that's a whole other podcast. If they want to change, if they want to change the subject, I mean, you know, evil plus evil. But I would like to quote again from the Wall Street Journal and an exquisite column by Greg Ipp um, on the the title here completely gripped me. And Neil, you're going to love it too. The unintended consequences of the quote free internet. It points out the price of free advertising share of total revenue. Susan, mm-hmm. Facebook's. Advertising share is 98.3%. Twitter at 86.4%. Google Alphabet, 86%. Microsoft, 6%. Amazon, 2.6% of its top line. 
Apple, less than half of a percent. And this takeaway um, really stayed with me. The zero-price business model is a source of many of the problems plaguing the internet. It's no coincidence that Google, Facebook, and Twitter, which garner more than 80% of their revenue from advertising, are the ones most often accused of propagating toxic content and eroding privacy, while Microsoft and Apple, whose revenue comes from selling software, hardware, and services, fly under the radar. Think about why price matters. It's how the market rations precious resources. A price signals to suppliers how much to invest in a product. It's how a consumer decides whether that product is the best use of her budget. A price of zero cripples that rationing role. When it comes to generating volume, free is a dream. When it comes to quality control, it's a nightmare. Correct. I would agree with that. I think the other piece that's played into that, and the reason why I'm interested to see what happens with the advertising revenue with Facebook is that Half of it is the information they have that allows the targeting. But they have super powerful tools that are proprietary to them that we utilize as advertisers as well. And those have not been working so hot in the past year either. So now you've got these dual forces squeezing down of there's all this bad PR, even though you know there's the free versus quality piece of it. But there's also this immensely powerful algorithm they've built on the advertising side that we utilize in many different ways, and that hasn't been doing so well either. And it brings up that question of, is there an audience problem that's causing the algorithm to not work as well as it did? Is it because the feed is saturated, because everybody's trying to advertise on there? We're seeing not as great a return as we used to on the Facebook side, which but, is also making it difficult. Now, Neil, you mentioned Sheryl Sandberg. She was asked point blank uh, this year in the company's travails, would you potentially come out with a paid tier? I mean, people have gotten used to paying for Spotify. They pay for Netflix for the ad-free experience. What if you offered people now that they're so involved in the network and invested and they've uploaded, I mean, quadrillion bits of data? <laughs> I mean, that, you know, if you ask them to pay maybe $50 a year, now they are terrified because of they know advertising at 98%. They don't want to go down that road. I don't think they're in a position to ask that today. Maybe three years ago, two years ago, they may have been able to do that as you know, some sort of a subscription tier as many of these content companies have gone to. Uh, but I don't think that's, that's going to get it done for them. I mean, one of the things um, uh, I would ask Susan is, from my understanding, traffic is flattened, engagement's down. Uh, it's, it's not just the targeting tools. Uh, it's not just their public travails but in terms of how they handle This is the year of the subscription. Everybody finally turning over. I mean, you know, Patreon doesn't work anymore. And we're going to ask you to subscribe. Quartz, all these guys out there. I mean, you know, we're going to do a segment on subscription fatigue. They've all turned around. They've seen the religion from the New York Times. If you want something good, if you want something that's not sullied, and, uh, you know, you're, you're paying us to be really good arbiters and really smart stewards and curators in a, in a kind of a governance sense, that's what it costs. I, I, you know, why not? Why not do that? The growth is stalled. But they only know advertising, much like we talk about public radio people only know pledge drives. I would just say this: if my fee was going, my subscription was going to go to uh, excellent curation, which I can count on for the New York Times or the Washington Post because they have been in the curation business for a hundred years. Yeah, I would consider it. But I'm not convinced that. Facebook can effectively do the curation business even if I were to pay for it. First, I'm skeptical people. How many people will pay for it, even with a global base of 2 billion people? Uh, how many people will truly be able to pay for it? You've got subscription fatigue to deal with. How many subscriptions am I really going to pay for? And you know what? I'm probably going to pay for Netflix before I'll pay for, um, I, I might pay for, uh, you know, Facebook. And then if the money was going to be invested in curation, that would be great. But look, they're attempting curation, right? They're throwing every engineer they can find at it. They can, they're doing, you know, working with all sorts of technology and other means, tons of moderators in various countries. But all in the but service it's not of, happening. All in the service of an advertising-driven business. Correct. This is where you might have to, Susan, consider a three-point turn on the super tanker. Like Apple, for example, has been looked at as a hardware company. When Wall Street scrutinizes its earnings now, it's looking at services revenue. How much are you charging me for iCloud? How about those add-ons, Apple Music, everything, the holy grail, that that bundled tier, uh, which I'm wondering. I mean, look, what is my relationship with Facebook? When I've had live shows, I've promoted on it. It hasn't done anything for me. It hasn't moved the needle. I mean, this is why people retain you, because you know specifically the words to go in, how to play the algorithm before the algorithm changes. Um, I am effectively a, a freeloader. I go on. I like to share professional 
you know, restaurant commentaries and the like, but it has never paid off for me uh, like other like other media. So um, I don't see the value proposition of that. Now, as an Apple fanboy with a person, I don't know if this is an apples to apples comparison, pardon the pun. Um, I do think it's indispensable. Everybody in the house is on an Apple product. You want to share, you know, we're already in the iCloud thing, Apple Music, Apple TV, we're invested. You really have our attention. The ecosystem is worth something. And they have been up till now pretty solid stewards of my privacy and my credit card number on iTunes and whatnot. And so I am very amenable to giving them an increasing share of my... What you just said is the important thing, though. This goes back to what you were saying before about the perception of Zuckerberg, the perception of the company. Because you have to remember, if you make it subscription, people are going to feel like they are paying Mark Zuckerberg. Whether that money goes directly into his pocket or not, it feels like an endorsement when you pay money to a company that does things. So whether it's really an endorsement or not, it's going to feel that way to the person parting with the money. And that's the other reason why the public perception piece is so important, because they leave less options for themselves when they have these problems and they don't deal with them well. I'd agree. I think... um People were willingly able to uh, give Steve Jobs money because they felt like they're buying into uh, an ecosystem uh, and, and you know, he was a marketer and there was a lot of things that he brought via his products. It was a physical thing that arrived at your door with this glorious box, this entire experience. Facebook is entirely on your laptop or on your phone and it's not the same thing and I'm now going to pay you to see my own stuff. Uh, to see my own friends, and I'm going to pay you a subscription to do that, that's really hard to do. I mean, if you if you go back to the analogy that this is really a utility company, uh, they're basically giving you free electricity. And, okay, you could start paying for electricity, but then when the electric uh, company has all sorts of environmental problems and it doesn't deal with it well, and it begins to foul your neighborhood and enrage your uh, neighbors, that that free electricity all of a sudden stops uh, not looking that attractive. And that is effectively their issue. I would agree. I think, you know, the other part of that is that they're a utility company in in one sense, but they are smart enough that they know, like, if users couldn't use them or they had to pay, the users aren't as likely to pay. If they took away advertising tomorrow, advertisers would completely freak out. So they know where their bread is buttered. I mean, they know who they've got that they can completely <laughs> suck dry from funds. And before I pivot with you, Susan, I do want to quote Gregory Ip's column one more time. I was so blown away by it. Uh, free, in quotes, is intrinsic to the profit model of search and social media. To generate ads, they must maximize users and engagement, which results in the lowest possible barriers to their platforms. To target those ads, they must learn as much about their users as possible. This pits volume and revenue against quality and privacy, and hence the inverse proportion. And I wonder if, uh, you know, Facebook keeps hemorrhaging market share. I mean, not market share, but this stagnation in a company that is really charged out of the gates that came out of nowhere to effectively own an enormous swath of advertising and kill companies with the help of Google, <laughs> right? Yeah. Send, send Time Magazine to the dustbin of history and the like, if this company is going to be pressured to change. Having said that, I do want to pivot you to one thing that kind of crossed my mind. I pull up uh, YouTube videos. If somebody sends me an old music video and everything, and now they seem to be in this kind of this five second mm-hmm. pre-roll thing, which annoys the heck out of me. There's one company that I've learned through this and I've learned to hate called Drive Time. <laughs> right? It's the car dealership yeah. and they have some mathematician on a chalkboard and I'm just looking for that skip button. Mm-hmm. So yes, you, I, I now know what Drive Time is, but for all the wrong reasons that I'm yeah. spending this time on the show to tell you how much I hate them <laughs> because they put this lame ad that forces me... Five seconds, it does. It just doesn't work. And in fact, it could have an adverse, inverse effect. I'm not. You're not buying me goodwill. You're buying my ill will. You're paying to piss off people. Basically, is what they're doing. But Google, which owns YouTube, Google paid a pittance now in hindsight for YouTube. I mean, one and a half billion, two billion dollars. Uh, their holy grail for them is to get you to upgrade, what is it, to YouTube Red? Mm -hmm. I don't think I'm ready to spend 20, 30 bucks a month for YouTube, but at some point it's going to annoy me enough that I might have to. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the thing where when you said before about the engagement piece on Facebook, that's been something that we've had to contend with as advertisers because it used to be that video ads on Facebook would get 10, 15, 20, 30 second views where you could have these longer brand stories that would be absorbed. But now that everyone's getting hammered so hard with it and they're experiencing it on YouTube now with these bumper ads that last for five minutes, they're just getting hit with this content 
getting hit with video so much, we're now seeing the average watch time on on Facebook ads that run video to be about eight seconds, which is just not that long. So it's a problem that's kind of starting everywhere because everyone's trying to maximize and squeeze as much as they can out of it. And they're going for shorter times with more repetition. I was. It's getting ridiculous, too, because I was at meetings at Google last year and they were touting the six second ad like it was the second coming. And it was they made it look like it was going to be a great platform. It's going to be they showed all these creative possibilities of the six second ad. And our creative people who are used to doing 30 seconds or longer were told everything's got to now work in six seconds. It's the new era. And I have to think about it. Creatively, yeah, someone could probably solve that and there'll be some interesting possibilities. But what exactly does the consumer get out of it? And in the end, you have to think about it and go, okay, so these companies, Google and Facebook, effectively with their business model, have effectively vacuumed out most of the ad dollars that supported curated media, right? Time Magazine, Bloomberg, any of these companies. It was curated media. Um, and all those dollars, you know, whether they destroyed the classified section or, or uh, you know, many other uh, parts, of, parts of these curated media, those dollars flowed into these companies. They went and made these other investments. They went to shareholders. But none of it went back to curation. And that is what we're dealing with. There, there can't be, in this, because of the scale, enormous success, the engineering culture, all these things, they can't find enough curators, either mechanical or human, to deal with it. Here's a question for you, Neil. We talked about this briefly. Verizon went out and, and, and bought the kind of the dregs of, of you know, dot-com 1.0, 2.0. There's a parallel company called Oath. I have, I have a lot of friends who work there. I mean, you know, shout name. out to Andy Serwer and Brian Sazi and everything. Yahoo Finance is now a Verizon asset. HuffPost with Ariana Huffington. That's a Verizon <laughs> asset. I don't believe any of this stuff is ever going to move the needle for Verizon. If you look at its income statement, I mean, this massive utility to take it back to your illustration. It is a utility Verizon, the old 9X, you know, uh, New York telephone. I don't see how this Oath business is ever going to move the needle for them. Mind you, they own AOL and Yahoo now, which at the turn of the century were the huge names, which I wonder in 18 years if we're going to be talking about Google and Facebook in the dustbin and acquired by, I don't know, you tell me. There was a, actually an interesting uh, survey I saw about a, a month and a half ago where they talked to a lot of people sort of the uh, Silicon Valley cognoscenti about what companies uh, that, that are that are big companies, unicorn companies today, would still be around 10 and 15 years from now. And what was interesting is the survey came back and everybody was in agreement that two companies would survive for a long time, and that was Amazon and Tencent uh, out of China. The rest of them, uh, and Apple, uh, the rest of them, there was real doubts whether they would be around a long time, and Facebook in particular, at least amongst those folks, looked vulnerable whether they would be around. And uh, I don't, I wouldn't bet against them because uh, as an advertiser, they have phenomenal targeting technology. Um, and, you know, they have 2 billion people they can reach out at a very granular level at a very affordable uh, uh, rate. Uh, so what that tells you is from a B2B perspective, right, as a B2B company, the B2B transaction between us and them it's pretty great. They have problems with the end product and the fact that uh, they're harvesting consumer attention and consumers and the people who represent them uh, are mad at them, or at least a large portion of them are mad at them or is suspicious of them now. The trust issue is what's, what's in challenge. Here's a stat. Uh, Facebook is denying a New York Times report on ignoring Russian activity prior to the 2016 election. They denied, denied, denied. They came out with a 4,500-word memo that Mark Zuckerberg, uh, you know, posted in this. He's dodged so many bullets. And in fact, going in front of Capitol Hill, you know, earlier in 2018, I remember all the memes aside, the stock rallied after that because it's kind of hard to keep your rage on this company. Again, it's, a, it's an important part of your life. Again, you can inveigh against Comcast until you turn blue in the face. But in the end, you need their fat pipes. You need you need them for sports and various other things, Susan. I wonder with the new uh other horsemen of technology, Apple, which is on the margins trusted, Google, maybe less so, Amazon. Is there an opportunity for them to fill coming in here and that with the network effects, for example, Apple and Google already have a foothold with Android and the iOS operating system to kind of come in and backfill some of the functionality that maybe Facebook is, is failing at trust-wise? 
Uh, I think that from a trust perspective, they'd gain market share there, so to speak. I think the toughest part, though, goes back to what Neil was saying, is if they want the ad dollars, they are so far behind what Facebook offers. So I operate in all of those platforms. You can't even compare them. I mean, it's just Facebook's marketing platform is by far the most advanced of any of them out there, even Google's. And Google had a lot more time to perfect that. And a lot of engineers. Yes, they really did. But they they didn't they didn't get to the predictive technology that Facebook has more than anything. So it's not just about targeting people that like certain things. Its algorithm is super effective at predicting what a user is actually going to do. And none of the other platforms do it nearly as well. So until they can catch up on the AI side, trust aside, I think that that's going to be the, the biggest challenge they face. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Susan Winograd and Neil Patel, digital marketing gurus. Uh, in the 12 or so minutes we have left, I'm going to pose a meaning of life question. Hugely provocative. Uh It's been asked on this show before. (laughs) What if, what if, maybe, mayhaps, perchance, advertising is dead or dying? And this is maybe the, the, this is all over but the screaming at this point. That when you see things like the six second pushback, and again, I'm going to mention them because he made me resent you, drive time. You know, if you're out there, if you're listening, it's not working, whatever you're doing out there, drive time. I I hate you, and if the most amazing car deal comes along with drive time, I'm not going to buy it. Because they should I'll get remember, in touch with me. You know, They're targeting you wrong. Susan, you're doing it all wrong. I mean, some algorithm is telling you you're doing it right, but what if I am absolutely ready? If you're going to take my relationship, we've talked about this in prior episodes about cord cutting and the like, if I take my, my notional 150 a month media buying relationship. It could have involved the full cable package, uh, movie theaters back in the the day and everything. And now I'm smashing it into bits, spending it on Netflix, spending it on um, Spotify, maybe uh, giving some to my local NPR member station. Hulu. Hulu. I mean, all these various players are vying for it. The New York Times, the Washington Post. Um, I just don't want advertising to have any part of my life anymore. Outside of seeking sponsors for my show, mind you, but <laughs> what if, what if? I mean, you have to face a, a terrifying question, and we've had Kristen Cavallo of the Martin Agency on. We've had various ad execs on. Stuart Elliott's going to come on soon, and they just don't want to consider this possibility. I think what we define as advertising is something that's important to that equation. So this is why you're seeing growth in the areas of, quote, influencer marketing, um, and things like that. So you're starting to come into an era and, the, you know, to be honest, this is propagated a lot by social media, but people want to feel like they are being related to. They want to buy from people they like. They want to buy from brands they like. So this humanization of brands, though it's been around for a really long time in advertising, it's kind of gone this whole extra mile now that, you know, people can leave comments about their experience with the brand on an ad and someone can respond and they can post pictures of their bad experience. Or it's become this thing where it's not just a brand controlled message about what that brand is. It's something that happens with everybody. So I think what we consider advertising, to your point, is probably going to look really different in 10 years than it does now. It's already starting that way. I mean, things that we run for brands now. There are some crazy ass things happening, though, even in influencer marketing. If you see on Instagram, everybody made fun of this woman who pretended to use, I don't know, a Dove product or something because <laughs> yeah. they pay you a lot of money. When 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 big brands and the Unilevers of the world and everything kind of edge in on that authenticity, millennials and Gen Z people can see smell it from 10 miles away. Mm-hmm. I think there's a, there's a larger larger issue here. And I, I, I agree with Susan. If you define advertising as what you've known, yeah, that form is going away. But you have to kind of step back and go, what is its function? It has two functions. And I don't think those go away. How they get expressed and monetized, that remains to be seen. What are those two functions? One is brand affinity. And that's what Susan's referring to. I may not have affinity to Dove, but I may have affinity to an individual person because people are now becoming brands because you can at a micro scale globally, right? A person can become famous out of their bedroom globally if they wanted to. So brand affinity you're gonna have to, is going to always uh, need to be built. There's just new tools and new ways to do it. The second thing, and that's actually uh, far more important, and that's important uh, to you, Robin. It's important to certainly Susan's agency. It's important to really anybody, which is demand generation. I need people to show up. It's great that you like me, but I need people to show up and do a transaction with me. And that is the discovery process. That is what advertising purports to do. It's called and seen as a different thing today, but it's going to be expressed differently. 
And then there's the other aspect to it. Uh, there's a statistic where something like 60% of the cost of all global content is subsidized by advertising. So if you make that go away, because for all kinds of reasons, we don't want to see it, who's going to come up with that 60%? Um, and maybe you and I and uh, others can afford it, but there's a whole bunch of people who may not be able to uh, afford it or don't want to afford it. So someone's going to have to subsidize the cost of consumption of, uh, and of content creation and curation, um, and there's only so much of it you can buy yourself. No one has figured this out yet, Susan, much less newspapers, yeah. you know? Yeah. No one, I mean, Warren Buffett bought the parent company of the Richmond Times Dispatch, and after a while, they realized that wasn't even the solution. They came out with a plea: "Can you please pay more for us after we've gutted the newspaper? Can you please pay us nine dollars a month <laughs> and let Warren, go the digital team?" Yeah, I mean, <laughs> look, this is this is this is driving everybody nuts. Maybe short of a billionaire buying you and backstopping you, and short of maybe the duopoly of the haves. No one has really figured it out en masse. There isn't a comfortable equilibrium. No, and I think the other thing to think about too is there's. There's a couple different ways to think about advertising because you have brands or product types that are established, right? So everyone's seen Coke commercials. Everyone's seen Pepsi commercials. I feel like there's an intrinsic difference between reinforcement of a legacy brand that exists versus something like, you know, 10 years ago, Uber didn't exist. It wasn't a, certainly wasn't a verb. Um, you would never think of having a stranger come pick you up. You just use a cab. People didn't search for the word ride sharing. It doesn't exist. If you look at Google Trends and you look at when it started, it started when Uber came out. So there's also these things that advertising does insofar as creating brand new categories of things that are designed to make people's life different. And I don't know that there's the aversion to learning about those things by consumers. I think that there's always going to be that need. It's just how it gets accomplished is going to be different. There's been a pretty consistent uh, studies, set of studies over the years, uh, and it comes out all the time. People hate advertising unless it's about the stuff they care about. Then they go, yeah, I want to see that ad. <laughs> and if you think about what Google's done, what Facebook's done, is a way to deliver that in relevance. Uh, going, oh, okay, well, that is something I care about because through either my behaviors or things I told you, you're giving me things I care about, except for, of course, your problems on YouTube there, Robin, uh, with the car, <laughs> car sale I have company. Two, by the way, let's throw another one around. Tabula. Mm. Outbrain. Yeah. Why? Why? Yeah. Why are we I doing know. that? Because oh, these yeah. are the ones offering money? Yeah. That, it's because it's cheap, honestly. so It's cheap, and it is antagonizing the last of the people who are going to tolerate this. But it works. So here's the other problem is that it when works you from an advertiser perspective. From an advertiser perspective. When yeah. you look at the data and the numbers, um, I've never had it work particularly well, but I've also talked with a bunch of advertisers that have for specific instances. So there are things that even if the general general population doesn't like them, if it works for the five percent of the people they're trying to reach, they're gonna continue to use those and those types of platforms will continue to exist. How's that different, Robin, than the old display ads in the newspapers? You know, they were in a way annoying. They were always at the end. They were incredibly profitable for the newspapers. This is just something at the bottom of a page. How is it any less or more annoying? I'm not defending those, uh, you know, but that's a publisher basically trying to find money anywhere it can to support uh, the operation he or she has. And it just smacks of a certain last inning desperation. Yes. That exasperates people. I think there – you talk about authenticity, Susan – for a publisher to come to me, and obviously no one else can really be the New York Times. It's not billionaire backstop, but they were so indispensable. They so stuck to their guns. They so avoided the clickbaity stuff, you know, in those intervening years when they even had to take a usurious loan from a Mexican billionaire, right, to make it work, that when the worm turned and people really put an emphasis on authentic news, they were taking subscriptions left and right. And at this point, they're not that bothered by the fact that their display ad business or their full-page department store or car ads are going away. I'm not convinced that other people have attempted that leap of faith. And that's what bothers me. When I see things like the tabulas, you know, kind of we're so desperate, we're just trying to milk out that last bit of incremental advertising just to keep the lights on. I think part of it, too, is think about where it shows also. I mean, it's one thing when you advertise directly on a platform like Facebook where you have a lot more control over where and how your ads show and it's their platform. When it's something like the New York Times and then you have these completely cheeseball <laughs> ads showing up at the bottom, it's it's a media site, right? So you're you're reading and consuming 
these stories and then your eyes drift down to this stuff that immediately just pulls down the quality of whatever you might have just read. And you saw the LA Times. I mean, Neil, this is back when you lived in LA. They took an enormous amount of grief for the advertorial yes. scandal. I mean, this was a storied newspaper when the Chandlers owned it and everything. Finally, it's found it's, it's you know, a billionaire savior, hopefully, from the Tribune misadventures and everything. But and, and this brings it back to the kind of the Facebook story. You take body blows to your credibility and people trusting you at that point. I mean, I'm not saying it's it's apples to apples, but when you have a dollar a day relationship or a subscription, maybe, you know, $7 a month or a quarter newspaper thing, you're hoping for the curators and the quality assurance people on the other side not to try to slip you one, right? Right. And that's, I think that was Neil's point about paying for a subscription, really. I mean, if we were to, if you were to move to a model where you're paying for these social platforms then they need to not have that kind of stuff on them. And who's going to police that? Like Facebook can't police what they have today and they're struggling with it from an organic and a, an ad standpoint. So now they're going to pay money and you're still going to see crappy ads. I mean, it, you know. In fairness, Facebook did have to make a significant pivot when it went mm-hmm. public, I believe in 2012 and the stock collapsed and everybody was calling it face plant or face bomb. <laughs> yeah. Everybody said that it had not figured out mobile advertising, that it was disproportionately on laptops and desktops and everything. And they made that three-point turn. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and think that the more these things happen and the more the company thinks it can get away with malfeasance and and Machiavellian-like behavior and hope that people give it another pass and that it can go back to kind of the dark arts of, of weaponizing this sort of data and bringing in shady third parties... The more over time, as as the generational tide turns, people are just going to tune away from it, and I think it makes it less less uh, priceless to, val- to to advertisers. So I do wonder, and this is where I'm going to push back on both of you: if as N tends toward infinity, they're going to have to increasingly become amenable to the possibility of charging people for an ad free experience. I know that terrifies them because they are a 98 percent advertising driven company, but mm-hmm. you wonder if it's destiny. Well, I think that's a good point. Their pivot to mobile was brilliant. Um, And look, it goes back to Zuckerberg being able to pivot a company even at that size to do that. And it's actually what uh, really propelled their growth and they hit it at the right moment with the right uh, platform to do that. So would I put it, uh, would I bet against them to not do another pivot? No, I would not. Because of that pivot that they did on mobile, they were able to show they can do it. But this one's a lot harder. You're doing it without the trust of of people in your subscribers. Your growth is flat. Uh, yes, you can probably get people to pay you uh, for a better experience, but is it enough to make up for what you would lose uh, on the other side? That remains to be seen. I, I'm, I'm skeptical that even if they were able to pull it off, that it's actually sustainable because of what I see across what I would call a curated landscape of media where everybody's struggling. My last prediction, and to close the show, we're all going to go back to Friendster soon enough. (laughs) (laughs) Susan Winograd and Neil Patel, digital marketing gurus, thank you so much for this thoughtful conversation. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Love us on NPR One and on iTunes at linkfulldradio.com. We are generating countless cross-channel clicks per kilobits per second. Geotargeters slinging CPM ad words on trillions of eyeballs. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week. It's hard for me to say I'm sorry. I just want you to stay. After all that we've been through, I will make it up to you.